Welcome to the History Unplugged podcast, the unscripted show that celebrates unsung heroes, myth busts historical lies, and rediscovers the forgotten stories that changed our world. I'm your host, Scott Rank. 2016 was considered a landmark year in U.S. politics because it was the first presidential election in which a woman won the nomination of a major political party to become president of the United States and nearly won. But women had been legally running for president well before 2016. Not talking about the 70s or the 60s with the women's rights movement, but all the way back to 1872. And this is decades before women could even legally vote. Since then, several dozen women have run for president, and almost all of them were long shots with nearly no chance of winning. But these long odds don't negate their story, and their presidential campaigns tell us a lot about the times in which they lived. In this episode, I'm talking with Richard Lim, host of This American President podcast. We look at the campaigns of four figures in particular. First, Victoria Woodhull, an 1872 candidate who ran for president even though she couldn't legally become president. Not because she was a woman, but because she was only 31 years old. She ran a brokerage firm in New York through the patronage of Cornelius Vanderbilt and was also a spiritualist, a radical communist, and possible former prostitute. But despite all this, she had a remarkable ability to reinvent herself. Second, we look at Margaret Chase Smith, a Republican from Maine and the first woman to serve in both houses of the U.S. Congress. She was a senator for 24 years. Smith was an early critic of McCarthyism and a 1964 presidential candidate who fashioned herself as the female Eisenhower. Third, we look at Shirley Chisholm, the first black woman elected to the U.S. Congress. She was a 1972 presidential candidate and, oddly enough, a friend of George Wallace. Yes, that segregationist George Wallace. Lastly, we look at Edith Wilson, who has perhaps the most interesting story. She was a first lady who essentially acted as a de facto president following the stroke of her husband Woodrow Wilson in 1919 and acted as president until March 1921. This is a very important time in history following World War I, when Wilson wanted the League of Nations to form. Edith had perhaps more influence on U.S. politics than any woman in history, despite the fact that she didn't support the suffragist movement. So anyway, I hope you enjoy this fascinating look at history that most people wouldn't suspect existed in this discussion with Richard Lim. All right, Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm really fascinated about this topic because people always assume that the idea of women in politics, oh, it started maybe in 2016. And of course, there's a 1984 with the vice presidential candidate, but Mm -hmm. we're on the cusp of something brand new here. But for students of history, they know that obviously women in politics isn't new. Consider British monarchal history, Queen Elizabeth, the Elizabethan Mm -hmm. age for the entire 15th century. The most powerful monarchs were women for the most part. But what Mm -hmm. gave you this idea to focus on female presidential candidates, even going back into the time before women could vote in the United States? Well, you know, when I was in college, I, I don't remember exactly when or what the circumstances were, but I remember I was... Uh, at a panel. I was watching a panel talk about, uh, you know, I think it was civil rights. uh, And 
and gender equality and all those kind of things. And one thing I remember, I, I don't remember anything else really from that panel, but the one thing I remember is that uh, one of the uh, women who was speaking, she was a pretty avowed feminist, and she said that her dream was to one day see uh, a woman president being sworn in by a woman chief justice of the United States. And, you know, the crowd, uh, you know, were, they were clapping and, and all that. And I, I really, I thought about that for a while because, you know, I, I thought, well, you know, why is that like the standard? Is that the standard for what uh, our country should be? And, and, and I just kind of pictured what would that be like? What would be, you know, what would it be like if we had a female president sworn in by a female Supreme Court chief justice and kind of the symbolic importance of that? This was back in like 2000 and, 2005 so it was, it was a while ago and yeah that always that that, that moment kind of stuck with me and had me think about yeah you know why is it so important symbolically to have a woman president to people and you know it's not it's not a matter of whether that's it's right or wrong it just it's something that that seems to have a real hold on the consciousness of people it's a it's a goal or it's you know people want that first one and so ever since that moment I always kind of thought about that yeah, when I uh, saw your episode on your podcast about this topic, I'm also intrigued how you did it because you had um, female voice actors read some <clears throat> of the parts. So there's good production quality. Exactly. But yeah, it's 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 new in the American sense, but mm-hmm. it's not new in the global political sense. There's a poet, Anne Bradstreet, who wrote in the 17th century in the American colonies, and she was talking about Queen Elizabeth, and she said. For those who say women are without reason, no tis slander now, but once was treason. So it, it's new, but it's not new. So yeah, I'm, I'm very curious from what does that mean symbolically? So let's jump right in. And there's a figure I'm very interested to hear about, and I had no idea about her before you mentioned her, and that is uh, Victoria Whittle, the mm-hmm. first female to run for president in 1872, decades before women had the right to vote, a good almost 50 years mm-hmm. beforehand. What would prompt somebody to run for president at this time period? Could she even legally be president if in some way she won? <laughs> right, right. Well, so she actually couldn't uh, legally be president. And the, the, the reason wasn't actually necessarily because of her gender. It was because she wasn't uh, going to be 35 on Inauguration Day if she was elected president. Uh, so, you know, in a sense, there's still kind of a debate about, oh, you know, is she officially the first one to run? But, I mean, she did announce and she's generally credited as the first woman in American history to run for president. And it's very interesting because I I remember hearing about her when I was in uh, high school taking AP U.S. history. And, you know, you learn a little bit about the suffrage movement. And, you know, it also says, oh, in 1872, Victoria Woodhull ran for, for president. And so historically, you kind of group her with all these other suffragists, uh, you know, the Susan B. Anthony's and Elizabeth Stanton and all those people. And, you know, they all kind of the, the image of these elder women from the Victorian age. But actually, in her background, she was nothing like them. I mean, she was, uh, you know, background and ideology and everything else. She was uh, much more radical. And she came from uh, pretty much a family of ill repute. And her father was basically a, like a, the equivalent of a snake oil salesman. 
and you know he p- pretended to be a lawyer and gave out phony legal advice and collect the fees. He would give out quack medicine as a doctor. And he also used his kids and exploited them as, uh, you know, as to get money. And he had his kids, uh, well, his wife was a spiritualist and she was really into seances and all these things. And Victoria and her sister, uh, Tennessee, were basically child preachers. And, you know, they would uh, just go, I mean, they would travel in different places in the Midwest and, you know, East, uh, Mid-Atlantic, and they would, uh, you know, like have these spiritualist kind of, you know, uh, uh, they would see things, visions and all that kind of stuff. And that's her background. In fact, there's even evidence, we're not really sure, but some authors think that her her father basically prostituted his daughters out. Um, so this is the background that our first female woman candidate for president historically uh, comes from. And, I, you know, as soon as I started learning about her, I just thought this is just too interesting to not have more people learn about. You know, I mean, she, she was not one of those Victorian women of the suffrage era that people picture. Yeah, there's some weird characters out there on the American frontier at this time. And I think you checked yeah. all the boxes right there. Snake oil, spiritualist, right. all the the weird esoteric religious movements. What prompted her to run based on her own words? Sure. Well, you know, that's a great question. I think um, one thing is that her and her sister were also just really a street smart. And they spent you know, a big part of their young life just kind of, you know, uh, just doing random odd jobs and just finding really unconventional ways to make money. And then they kind of decided, you know what, we're into spiritualism. Uh, I heard a lot of these rich people up in New York City are into spiritualism. Let's go there and get in with those people. And they actually specifically targeted Cornelius Vanderbilt, you know, the <laughs> Cornelius Vanderbilt, the, the the magnate, you know, the steam and rail uh, billionaire in today's dollars. And they, we don't know exactly what happened, but they, you know, Vanderbilt was the kind of guy you could literally knock on his mansion and he'd open the door. So they did that. And these two young, attractive women, you know, they get to know him. He was already very old at that point. He was old and widowed. And somehow they convinced him to, uh, again, it's not exactly clear, but at some point after meeting Cornelius Vanderbilt, they went from these two random girls, uh, you know, living, uh, not even paycheck to paycheck, but, you know, basically just uh, uh, hand and mouth. And then suddenly they own a brokerage firm in New York City. (laughs) (laughs) And when that happens, uh, it made news. It was the they were the first women in America to own a brokerage firm in New York City. Uh, I've heard different things about how they made that money, money, whether it was directly from Vanderbilt or, you know, some say Vanderbilt kind of told them which stocks would to invest in. And, you know, next thing you know, they make tons of money. But then from there, uh, you know, they got a lot of press. The, the suffragists actually, you know, they, they met them. They, they were like, these women are great because, you know, we're here, we're fighting for, uh, the right to vote and all this stuff. But these women are actually going out there and doing the things that we want to do. You know, they're, they're making money. They're having their own careers and all that. And then at some point, Victoria Woodhull, she just kind of adopted that suffragist mantle. Uh, and she, uh, you know, I think that running for president was kind of the next big thing to do, you know, <laughs> and suddenly she's, she's just, and she didn't, uh, 
you know, it wasn't like a party nominated her. She just decided to run. <laughs> now, uh, later, before the election, just to maybe because I think she announced in 1870, I think 1871, 1872, this group called the Equal Rights Party, who were basically these group of radicals, they got together and formally nominated her. They also nominated Frederick Douglass. Uh, to be her vice presidential candidate. And again, if you know, when you look in the history books, you just see, oh, Victoria Woodhull and Frederick Douglass, they were nominated. And you kind of think, oh, you know, it, 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 it almost lends legitimacy to it, the fact that Frederick Douglass was nominated. You know, he's a very respected figure. Uh, but in reality, Frederick Douglass was actually campaigning for Grant. He was Republican and he, you know, well, he was supporting the Republican. And D- Douglas had never met her. No, re- <laughs> like had had never asked for this. Like they just kind of tacked his name onto it to add legitimacy. But Woodhull, again, historically, oh, okay, you know, she, they were all together in this reform movement. Not really. And and I, I think you know a lot of it was kind of she just kind of got swept up in her fame, and she just adopted this new movement. It was really crazy. Um, so yeah, it, it just seemed to be a, a kind of a. Uh, a crazy ride to fame and fortune, you know, in a very short period of time. And I guess running for president was kind of the next step. It's easy to knock her that, oh, this is somebody who glommed onto fame and fell into this. But honestly, if you look at enough presidents, that's not too different from some of the presidents we've had. Harry Truman, who um, was a favorite son of the crony boss of Kansas City and just fell into success despite his best efforts to sabotage his own life until he fell into a Senate seat. He becomes vice president. His president dies. He becomes president, despite all reasonable expectation, does a good job. So in an alternate reality, what if President Woodhull would have been a perfectly fine president? We don't know. Could have happened. (laughs) Possible. (laughs) Do you have any sense of how much traction did her campaign get? Were newspapers writing about her? Did she do much in terms of campaigning? Well, so the fact that she became, uh, you know, that her and her sister own this brokerage firm, that definitely made noise. Um, and it's interesting because if you actually read some of the, the you know, the media reports at the time, some people were pretty friendly to them. Uh, you know, I mean, th- there were some that, that basically said, yeah, you know, these two women, they're actually doing some pretty cool things. They're, they're sh-, you know, and it was, there was an era of reform, uh, the, a spirit of reform going on. It was not too long after slavery, slavery had been abolished uh, at the, you know, during the end of the Civil War and suffrage movement was going pretty strong. So, uh, there were people that were open to it. The, the problem uh, is that, well, there are two things, really. The first is that uh, her views came out, and they were a lot more radical than you know the suffragists. And uh, her views, it's interesting, because she started a, a newspaper, uh, well, it was actually a, a weekly with her sister, and they started putting on, like, you know, the Communist Manifesto, and they would, uh, you know, they, they, they were friends with kind of these radical... Uh, leftist international labor groups, which is funny because I mean she made her money through like this capitalist, you know, <laughs> this this uh, this essentially this billionaire equivalent of one at least, and uh, they were hobnobbing with all these New York elites. But you know, they're of course they're hanging out with all these uh, uh, also you know publishing communist or socialist <laughs> paraphernalia, and um, uh, yeah, so they they were doing all this stuff, and and people started realizing, oh, these guys are are really crazy um she married well, one thing i i neglected to mention so she was married very young uh when she was 15 
to a man who was basically like a, an alcoholic, a man who would frequent brothels. Um, and uh, she ended up uh, marrying, well, she married another man uh, afterwards who was a Civil War veteran. His name was uh, Colonel uh, Colonel James Harvey Blood. Great name, James Blood. <laughs> and he was the head of the Spiritualist Society. And apparently when they first met, uh, it was one of those things where uh, they both realized that uh, actually when she met, she suddenly fell into a trance and apparently both were betrothed on the spot by the powers of the air. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> these two were pretty out there. Um, but it came out that she was actually living with her first husband while she was, you know, married to her second husband. Obviously, that's, you know, especially during the Victorian age, very scandalous. Um, now, you know, her first husband was kind of just a total wreck. And so she justified it by saying, oh, well, the, you know, this was an act of charity on my part. Um, but, you know, things like that, people just kind of realized, whoa, this, this is kind of crazy. Um, a lot of s- details about their family came out. Uh, and the fact that she actually, uh, the probably the most controversial things she, she supported was uh, free love, basically open marriages. Um, and, you know, so imagine how scandalized people were at that time about this kind of stuff. Uh, and, and the, you know, then there were the stories about her parents and the, the fact that her dad may have prostituted them out. And, you know, historians debate on whether that actually happened, but there were definitely rumors of it. So all of that really, like before the election even happened, suddenly her and her sister, all this stuff comes out, and they're they're basically just. Uh, I, I mean, people back and forth uh, all over the country were like these these. I mean, they they were using pretty uh, pretty unpleasant words to describe both of them, you know. Uh, and so, uh, you know, essentially, and the suffragists at that point were like, oh, uh, actually, we don't we don't associate with these people at all, <laughs> you know. So, so yeah, it was a pretty rough. Um, rough uh time for them and it it really i mean she was less than 35 when when she ran for president so it's it's one of those things where very young she became very famous and then suddenly she became very tarnished very quickly and what one the other thing i was going to say is that harper's weekly uh they actually ran a cartoon uh of her where she uh they actually made her to look like a satan and they called her mrs satan uh, which really kind of showed you what, how people felt about her, that she was this evil influence on the, on the country. So, Poor suffragist. You find a spunky candidate <laughs> that you think can live up to your ideals, and she embodies every single bad stereotype that people would have if women, oh, if women get the right to the vote, they're going to proclaim <laughs> free love and become communists and right, right. be bigamists and everything else and get into weird spiritual stuff and cults. So. Yeah, that's rough. Yeah. Put your money on the wrong horse. It, it is, you know, it's very interesting, you know, despite all that. And I mean, you know, whatever one might say about her views. One, one thing I will say just reading about her is that that had to have been just very difficult for anybody because, you know, for a while she was really shunned by a lot of people. And, um, uh, you, you know, she actually spent a lot of her life just going on the lecture circuit and just giving lectures and, you know, there, all these uh, suffragists at first, but then I guess may, maybe mainly radicals would listen to her and her sister. But it, it's interesting because after all that, oh, and there's also a, a scandal. There's a sex scandal that happens um, during this, and they, they weren't directly involved in it, but there there was this preacher who uh, was he was very prominent, and they published an article about him. He, his name was he was Reverend uh, Henry Ward Beecher. He was very prominent, 
And uh, he was related to the Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote the famous book before the Civil War. Um, but he he attacked them, uh, you know, saying free love is horrible and all that. And so they retaliated by exposing uh, marital infidelity on his part. And there was this trial about that because and it was actually illegal at the time to publish anything like that it was considered a uh, libel and it's it's funny because Victoria Woodhull was actually arrested on the day of the election because of publishing that and there's a story that she actually hid as a Quaker woman to get uh to escape to elude capture I mean it's just like out of a movie you know um and she was in prison and so it, it's funny again historically you know people will read oh the first woman to run for president was in prison on election night and it, the implication is that it had something to do with the election it actually didn't it had something to do with uh j- you know the fact that she published this scandalous story and, and ironically that same year uh Susan Susan B. Anthony was uh, arrested for trying to vote um, in that election, which is unrelated to this whole thing. (laughs) But anyways, that trial that happened, uh, Victoria Woodhull and her sister were just run through the the gutter and they, you know, people were just trying to slander each each other as much as possible to discredit the other side. It was it was very ugly. And she really, uh, you know, at some point her and and Tennessee just moved to uh, to, to England where uh, they uh, she had divorced Colonel Blood and then they they married rich guys out in uh, in in England and they kind of as time went on you know in the the early 20th century they kind of became like these dowager suffragist ladies you know that were you know these young the younger suffragists would look at them and say oh these were you know she was one of the great young suffragists and so they kind of became these old respected figures who married wow. really rich guys at the end of their life very fascinating and i i think from what i remember her sister tennessee claflin uh married a man of nobility so she had some fancy title and and would see the queen and i mean it's just crazy crazy story Hey everyone, Scott here. We're going to take a very short break for a word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Wise, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. I lived overseas for many years, and one of the biggest bottlenecks to international living is money transfers. You want to withdraw money from an ATM to access funds from your American bank account, and you don't realize you're getting hit with a $10 charge every single time you do that. Yeah, that did happen to me. So if you're dining in dollars or want to do business in bot, what a Wise account does is let you send, spend, and receive money in different currencies. Wise is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. This goes from a night out at a tapas bar in Spain to buying a property in the Yucatan. So if you're a digital nomad in Bali or want to send money back to mom, it's simple. And this is all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Wise works in over 160 countries, so your money's always at your fingertips. And over half of the transfers get their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this app. Join 16 million customers and learn how a Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com unplugged. That's wise.com unplugged. One more time, wise.com unplugged. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate Cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. That's a fascinating story. There has to be a movie to be made about that somewhere. Because like you said, it's easy to just strip it down to 
This was a early candidate who was persecuted for trying to assert herself as a woman in politics. And I'm sure some of that is mm-hmm. true, but then there's a whole lot more to the story. Well, I'd like to jump ahead a century and uh, look at candidates in the middle of the 20th century. We've passed the suffrage movement. Women have the right to vote. We're somewhere in second wave feminism, depending on how you define it. Let's go up to 1964 and look at Margaret Chase Smith. She's also a presidential Mm -hmm. candidate. So could you tell me about her? What's her background and what prompted her to run? Yeah, Margaret Chase Smith, I think uh, you could say, was probably the first uh, woman with an established political career in the mainstream to run. Now, between her and when Victoria Woodhull uh, ran, obviously a lot of things happened, uh, not just women's suffrage, but... Uh, a lot of a lot of women were now in politics and they were getting elected to different offices. And also um, there were women that actually did run for president between the two. But, you know, they were usually pretty uh, pie in the sky candidacies. Uh, but Margaret Chase Smith, uh, basically her husband, she got into politics uh, because her she married a man who was much older than him. His name's Clyde Smith, who was a congressman. A uh, longtime congressman from from Maine, and they were married for a number of years. And he died, but before he died, actually, when he was rather sick, uh, she kind of she had worked for him in his office, but she kind of did a lot of his duties. She she pretty much knew what it was like to be a member of Congress. And when he died, she basically this is what they called the widow's mandate and it had happened a few times before where you know a member of congress died and their their spouse would actually kind of fill in the rest of his term um but you know she did that and then she won special election and then she just kept winning uh the seat because since she had kind of done his job she was very well established and the you know the people of Maine uh they decided they wanted her to to Keep, you know, keep the seat. And then she was elected to set the Senate. So she was the first woman in American history to serve in both houses. Hmm. How long was she a yeah. uh, representative and a senator for approximately? Um, well, so he died in 1940 and she pretty much took over a seat from there. And then in 1948, she ran for the Senate and, and was elected and she would go on to continue to serve until the early 70s. When she yeah. runs in 1964, it's not on the two major party tickets. What ticket mm-hmm. t- does she run on, and how does she frame herself? Oh, it herself? actually was. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, so she was a Republican, and she was a moderate Republican in the vein of uh, the Thomas Deweys, the Dwight Eisenhowers. Um, and it, it's interesting, the, the seminal moment for her, the moment that kind of stands out in her career, is that she was actually one of the first senators to actually take on McCarthy and you know when Joe McCarthy is rising um, and her as a more moderate Republican uh, she was definitely in kind of the mainstream of American politics in fact when when FDR was was president um, she supported a number of his policies especially when it came to internationalism uh, and and defense preparedness uh, she kind of went against a lot of the Bob Taft uh, isolationism and uh, M- McCarthy was obviously, uh, you know, as we all know from from learning about him in history, he was uh, had this big crusade to ferret out communists throughout the government, and it was very controversial. And people felt that he was, you know, ruining lives and all that stuff. And she she stood against him, and she gave a speech on the Senate floor 
and I believe he was present in that speech, but it was one of those, uh, you know, stood up against what he was saying and, and it helped kind of turn the tide against McCarthy. And so, you know, that kind of action and the fact that she's probably the most prominent women, woman in Congress at the time inevitably led to people saying, well, you know, maybe this is the time for, for a woman president. She runs on yeah. the Republican ticket is uh so I take it she's part of the mix in the in the Republican primary. Sure. Well, it, it's interesting because um you know, she uh, she'd already been in politics. She had already been in the Senate by about 20 years uh by the time she gets to run. And I I think she probably would have tried to run earlier. Uh, the problem was is that you know the the Republican Party and, and it's not her problem. I mean, it's not the country's problem. It's I guess it's kind of a problem from her perspective. Is that you know 1952 was Eisenhower's year. Uh, you know he ran for president. Then he ran in 1960. I'm sorry, 1956, won two terms, and then his vice president Richard Nixon ran in 60 against Kennedy and lost. So basically, she was kind of frozen out out of three elections because, I mean, no one's going to take on Eisenhower. And, you know, Nixon was kind of the natural heir. So 64 was the first time that there was really kind of an open uh, race for that, for the uh, nomination. But by then, she was already, you know, uh, a lot advanced in age. She was actually, uh, yeah, she was in her, her 60s by then. And it's interesting because... If you read about what people said about her, um, more people were concerned about her age than her gender. Huh. And whenever they took polls, they found – and you know, the age thing being an issue, uh, first of all, because people were saying, oh, it's the Cold War. Uh, you know, we need a, a, a younger president who can handle you know, staying up you know, two weeks in a row like Kennedy did during the Cuban Missile Crisis and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, but she would point out, well, you know, Dwight Eisenhower is pretty old and he did a fine job and, and all that. And <laughs> and it's interesting because polls actually said that uh, women were more concerned about her functioning as president than men. Uh, huh. And so less women would support it. Um, and, and, you know, one of the, the most interesting clips um, – is uh, President Kennedy, not too long before he was assassinated, he gave one of his famous press conferences, you know, those televised press conferences. And if you can watch the clip, and a journalist asked him about, uh, you know, Margaret Chase Smith, and and Kennedy had served with her in Congress for a number of years, you know, he, he knew her pretty well. And, you know, Kennedy was a Democrat, and so, you know, the idea was Margaret Chase Smith might try to run in 1964. If she gets the nomination, she'd be her opponent. And and uh, a journalist asked him, you know, what do you think about Margaret Chase Smith? And just upon asking that question, uh, the the all the people there, mainly journalists, they 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 started laughing. I mean, they started scoffing, like, oh, you know, uh, uh, you know, the idea of a woman running for president—it's so silly. And then President Kennedy actually like very seriously serious face he says you know he didn't even smile he, he actually he didn't even kind of engage in any of the laughter and he, he said well you know if i were a, a republican running for president i i wouldn't want to face uh senator smith because she's a, a very formidable figure um so she definitely had a uh, respect uh you know a lot of people respected her she had a long time in service and I think the the McCarthy thing. Uh, she really got a, a reputation for being uh, courageous. That's sixty yeah. uh, four. So that's when Goldwater mm-hmm. was the Republican nominee. Um, right. How far she did, did she get? Was did it look like there was ever much of a chance of her getting the nomination, or was she mm-hmm. mostly marginalized in the primary fight? Well, what's interesting about it, and and 
part of it is the fact that since she was frozen out of those years, um, you know, that was a time when I think the Republican Party, uh, it the moderates were a lot more powerful at that time because it was the Robert, it was the Thomas Dewey, Dwight Eisenhower era of republicanism, and you know, Eisenhower moved the party, I think, to the to the center, and um, and then you know, by the time Marjorie Smith runs, uh the conservative movement under Goldwater is, is kind of exploding onto the scene. So she kind of missed out there. Now, what's interesting is that inevitably a lot of people just assumed that she might be running for vice president, the vice presidential nomination, you know, and, and there were a number of people that said that'd be pretty good ticket, you know, Barry Goldwater on, on as president, Margaret Chase Smith as vice president, you know, you have, you can unify the party, the conservative wing and the moderate wing and, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, the the part of the problem was that uh, she ran a campaign. Basically, uh, you know, she had almost no resources. <laughs> she had very little money. Uh, you know, there was very uh, she and she ran a campaign. You know, she I think she just kind of went by bus around Maine and just uh, you know, no TV ads, just purely meeting people. And I I think if I recall, she she would make it a point to go back to the Senate to make sure she voted. Because for a while she had the record for the most number of consecutive votes, um, so she was torn back and forth between uh, going to D.C. and going to all these different states for the primaries. And so, you, you know, ultimately she didn't do very well. And um, she also she did well in Illinois. I think she got about a quarter of the vote, um, but everywhere else she was kind of shut out. And but you know, to her credit, she was the first woman to even uh, have her name being placed for the nomination, and she did win a few delegates. So, um, you know, she she is in history for that. If she yeah. had one, let's look at our um, alternate universe here. Do you think mm-hmm. it would be just in the similar vein of the the Rockefeller Eisenhower sort of Republican governing style? Oh yeah, yeah. I I think um I mean that that would have been very interesting because uh I guess she would have been going up against Johnson, Lyndon Johnson and uh yeah, she was definitely a, a well like a long record of of being kind of that that moderate Republican, moderate conservative uh, you know, uh voting record. So yeah, I I think she definitely would have have governed in that respect. Do you get a sense of, was there any sort of legacy from her campaign beyond, you mentioned she was the first establishment mainstream female candidate. Mm -hmm. Do you think she did anything to pave the way for other candidates? Yeah, I I do. You know, part of it is looking at the totality of her career, you know, being the first woman to serve in both houses. And one thing, too, is that before her... There were a number of women who served in Congress, but a lot of that was because of the widow's mandate. You know, wife fills in the rest of the, the, um, the, her husband's late husband's term. But she was uh, one of the first to break through that and have a career of her own. And so I, I think if you look at the continuum of, you know, women's involvement and having long established careers, I, I, you know, she, for a while, for a long time, she was one of the most admired people in the country. Um, and, you know, if it, I think, She's the kind of person that if you were into politics in the 50s and 60s and, you know, you would think, oh, you know, who's the main woman in in Congress right now? You would you would think of Margaret Chase Smith. That was her. Um, So I I definitely think that she and the fact that she was also very well respected. I think she definitely was uh, somebody that did leave a legacy. 
Well, the pace seems to quicken when it comes to female candidates. And the next mm-hmm. one you discussed is in 1972, Shirley Chisholm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So tell me about her background and is she sure. similar to Smith, different? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, they, they were obviously they were contemporaries to an extent, um, very different backgrounds. She uh, she's from New York City, but her parents were immigrants from Barbados. Uh, it's interesting because her parents, uh, she was born in New York City, but then her parents sent her down to Barbados to get an education because um, uh, she studied, uh, I guess, under kind of the British schools down there. Um, when she, so it was quite a transition to go from, you know, the, and then after that, she went back to New York city. This is all when she's a kid. So she's kind of going between the Caribbean and New York city, which is a big culture change, weather change, everything, um, you know, ex- experienced a lot of both racism and sexism once she got, uh, you know, to the, to the United States. Uh, but she was one of those girls that just, you know, she did great in school and her teachers and her professors all saw that she was, uh, you know, very smart and she was going to really make something of herself and be a, a leader. Uh, and along the way, she got involved in, in politics and, um, you know, local democratic politics. And one thing, uh, you know, she would see all the machine politics going on in, in New York City and she would start challenging that, you know, start challenging the old boys club and, uh, you know, advocate for minorities and, and, uh, you know, the poor and everything like that. And she specifically became a leader in the education system. Uh, was kind of, If you were in New York City around the 50s and 60s and you wanted to, oh, who should I talk to about, you know, uh, education reform and all that, she, would, she was kind of the go-to person. And she, you know, she parlayed that into a political career, uh, was elected to the state assembly, and uh, she ran for Congress in 1968. And she won, and she was the first African-American woman elected to Congress, so definitely a a trailblazer in that respect. What's interesting, too, is that um, during that time, you had the the modern feminist movement. You also had um, the civil rights movement, the overarching civil rights movement, and when she ran, there were actually a a number of the African-American men that you know, were they're the most prominent of that community that were involved in politics. A lot of them opposed her because they wanted to run African-American men, not women. So huh. there were all these divisions that were going on. At the, at the same time, there were a lot of the big feminists who were really excited about her, but they would kind of uh, want to support people that they felt were more electable, you know? So when she ran people like Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem, Oh, they were so excited about her, but they, they, they wanted to endorse, they they wanted to endorse her, but they also liked Eugene McCarthy and George McGovern because strategically they had a better chance of, of winning and, and all that stuff. So she definitely, uh, I think, um, was, was someone who was kind of in the middle of all the different movements and reforms and and you know her navigating that was a great challenge. You know, one of the interesting things she said was that she always felt that it was harder being a woman than it was being African American. Um, and sometimes she would be more scathing towards people of her own race. Uh, you know, because she felt that you know, hey, I'm trying to work with everybody here, and they don't want me to work with everybody. You know, so it was definitely interesting. She definitely had to navigate through some very difficult politics during that time. How much traction did she get compared to Smith? Was it 
Did she have mm-hmm. uh, any support at all? It seems Smith had almost none. Did Chisholm fare better mm-hmm. that way? Well, so uh, the answer is uh, that it's it's pretty much kind of the same thing. They didn't get a ton of traction. Um, she did get a number of delegates. In fact, until Hillary Clinton ran in two thousand eight, the first time Hillary ran, uh, she had she had the record for the most delegates that any woman had ever had from a, a major party. Um, so she, you know she had a number of support, and and seventy two was kind of the start of when the Democratic Party had more open primaries, um, you know, less less super delegates, more delegates chosen by primaries. It was a bit more diverse. So, you know, you had a record number of African Americans that were um, participating, and so it, it was a time where she, you know, she had the opportunity to get more support. Um, and uh, one thing I'll, I'll say also is that. Um, she, uh, you know, she she definitely. Well, first of all, her campaign when she ran for Congress, I thought thought is just perfect for her. It was Shirley Chisholm, unbought and unbossed, <laughs> and that really kind of gives you a picture of who she was. I mean, she's a very strong lady. Um, the other thing too is that when she was running, uh, you know, this is during the Nixon administration and the '60s and '70s when uh, college campuses were a real hotbed, and she was a favorite. I mean, she was the kind, she would go and speak. At the you know in campuses, and she was very popular. Um, you know, college students loved her, so she definitely that was kind of her base of support. Uh, and I think you know for her, it was a matter of speaking uh, for those people uh, and speaking, giving them a voice. Um, so, so I think that was kind of the main idea behind behind her candidacy. Wow, so uh, proto Bernie Sanders from 2016, or if we want to go old school 2004, Dennis Kucinich, the college campus favorite. Right. Well, she was, uh, you know, and she was definitely a vowed liberal in in her, um, as far as the policies she supported. Um, And, but one of the things I thought was really fascinating about her was actually her very unlikely relationship with George Wallace. George Wallace, the, the, pro-segregationist governor, right? Um, And it's interesting because when they asked Wallace, who was running that year, who he respected the most among the Democrats, he said, or, uh, you know, among the liberal Democrats, he said he supported, uh, he uh, respected Shirley Chisholm the most because she said the same thing in in the South that she would say up in New York City. Um, And so he, he really respected her as far as her views, you know, here's a here's an African American woman, and he he's the kind of the face of segregationism, right? But but he he respected her, and you know that was the campaign where he was shot and uh, paralyzed, and she actually uh, visited him in the hospital, and he when he when she visited him, he he told her he was like, I, hey, I know you're going to get a lot of heat for this, you know, from your own people. And she says, and she basically said, I don't care. You know, I don't care if I get heat from this. And um, he was moved to tears by that. You know, he to him, it was it was quite a gesture. And, you know, she was quoted basically saying, look, you know, he and I disagree. But if 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 I'm not going to show courtesy to this man as a fellow human being, are we any better, you know? And mm-hmm. I, I think that, you know, learning about her, um, you, you definitely, regardless of one's political views, you definitely come to respect someone who, who has that kind of mindset. And she was definitely very honest. <laughs> you know, she was not afraid to criticize anybody, whether it was one of her own, uh, you know, or, or 
anything like that. Well, I'm really fascinated by this test case of two female presidential candidates very close in time, Margaret Chase Smith and Shirley Chisholm. There's an interesting uh, political question here where you have two candidates that at this time in history, it's kind of hard not to say that being female is a handicap if you're running for president, because this is something the electorate is, for the most part, not used to. So you have a lot to overcome. But you have two very different approaches. One approach in the Smith case is be as mainstream and as acceptable and as boring as possible. I'm sure she would she didn't choose her policies based on that. She'd always had them. But this is a female candidate, something to overcome. So be as boring as possible in one sense. And Dwight Eisenhower in female form versus the other Shirley <laughs> Chisholm of this is already something that is something to overcome. So just mm-hmm. run with that and fully embrace mm-hmm. whatever constituency you would have that would be mm-hmm. on the very progressive side. So do you think seeing those two, did you think you got any insight of if somebody is going to break a barrier for whatever as a politician, did mm-hmm. you get a sense of that there's an advantage one way versus the other, boring versus uh, pizzazz, I guess? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um and I think part of it is it goes to kind of the the differences in both parties, the Democratic Party, the Republican Party. Uh, you know, Shirley Chisholm was someone I I felt I think reading about her, she really fit right into what was going on at the time. Uh, you know, not afraid to challenge the status quo. Uh, I think with uh, with when it came to Margaret Chase Smith, I th- I think she was somebody that. Um, really kind of carved a, a niche for herself when she was in the Senate. And, you know, honestly, I do think that if circumstances were different for Margaret Chase Smith, I do think it's possible that she could have gone a lot farther. You know, she was somebody that was talked about for a while as as being at the least a vice presidential candidate. Um, and, you know, the, you know a, a Democrat president, John F. Kennedy, had enough respect for her to to say it out loud in a press conference to say hey don't estimate underestimate her you know so i i do think that if circumstances were different she may have been able to at the least have been a vice presidential candidate um there's another woman that uh, i didn't cover but um olvita cup hobby i forgot exactly what her background is but i do know she was uh I think she was she was a cabinet member under Dwight Eisenhower. I think she was the second woman to be a cabinet member. Uh, the first was under Roosevelt, um, but he he was uh, Eisenhower nominated, uh, you know, appointed her as a cabinet member, and he actually told her he thinks she should run. You know, maybe in 1960. You know, and I I don't know we don't know the reasons why, but apparently he felt that you know she was pretty qualified and um she had a had a pretty impressive career so i i think that if circumstances were different i could see margaret chase smith having a better shot than she had let's look at someone else you mentioned and i forget the term when the widows um uh, when she fills out her husband's widow's mandate term. widow's mandate thank widow's you mandate, right? well we have perhaps the most powerful example of a widow's mandate where you think there wasn't a female president? Some would say that there was. So can you tell me about Edith Wilson? Uh, yeah, you know, she's definitely one of the most interesting uh, kind of, I guess, obscure figures in American history um, because, well, first of all, she came from pretty good stock, uh, came from a, a big Virginia family. Uh, she had, uh, you know, she was a, a relative, distant relative of 
Thomas Jefferson, Martha Washington, Robert E. Lee, Pocahontas, you know, so pretty good roots there. Um, but, you know, up until her 40s, she was pretty much your, uh, you know, nice, sweet, uh, unremarkable person. You know, I mean, she she married a man who was a jeweler in Washington, D.C. She moved to, you know, she married him. Uh, I, I forgot what year exactly, but she married him and she lived in D.C. for a number of years. And when she was 35, her husband died and she was basically stuck uh, running his jewelry business. And she was able to run it pretty well and earn a living for herself. But really, again, totally kind of uneventful life. In when in 1915, when she was 42, she had already been a widow for about seven years. Um, she she had a good friend named Alice Gordon. Alice Gordon, at that time, was being pursued by a man named Doctor Carrie Grayson, and Grayson happened to be President Woodrow Wilson's doctor, and so Grayson met Edith through his pursuit of Alice, and Grayson. Uh, also knew Woodrow Wilson's cousin, Helen, and he knew that she liked to take walks and she, he knew that, uh, Edith liked to take walks. So he, Oh, let's introduce them. So he introduces them. So now Edith is good friends with Woodrow Wilson's wife. And I'm sorry, uh, Woodrow Wilson's cousin. And so, you know, now she's hanging out with the co- the president's cousin and Helen decides to invite her to the white house. Now this is, um, uh, not too long after Woodrow Wilson is widowed, his first wife died in the White House, unfortunately, in 1914. You know, Wilson was devastated, uh, understandably. And, it, you know, the White House was a very sad place, um, you know, and, and it really kind of hovered o- over the White House. And, uh, you know, I guess Wilson's cousin felt that, you know, this lady, she's so nice, maybe she can kind of cheer him up. And Woodrow was instantly taken with her. You know, so you imagine the President of the United States, you meet the President of the United States, you're just kind of an average, you know, random person. Suddenly you get invited to the White House, you, you know, you run into the President of the United States. He's, he just falls for you hard. Two months after they first met, he basically proposes to her. <laughs> and she actually was very taken aback at first and she's oh I, you know this is a bit fast for me and so she basically told him well let's get to know each other more you know pretty understandable and they do that and he pursues her and pursues her and you know they're married not too long after that at the end of december 1915 not too long just a few months after they met so suddenly she's the first lady of the united states which is just incredible i mean, just can't can't imagine what that was like <laughs> Hey everyone, Scott here. One more brief word from our sponsors. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. First, the bad news. 
SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. That's incredible. That's an incredible rise to power. And this is in 1915, you said. So there's a major trigger event, which is why we're talking about Edith right now. When does President Wilson suffer his stroke? So, you know, there are a number of interesting things here. The first is that in the lead up to that, so, you know, they're married at the end of his first term. He wins the second term the following year. And he actually, they were so in love, apparently, that he... You know, they want to be around each other all the time. So he starts basically including her on all his work. So, you know, when when he's doing his work, she's there and he's kind of just kind of teaching her what he's doing. And so she helps him out. And I don't know if you how you want to describe the kind of the working relationship, if he's kind of like her, you know, uh, his secretary or his helper or whatever. But so she gets familiar with what, you know, his job is like as president. Um you know, meanwhile, while this is going on, uh, World War One is wrapping up and Woodrow Wilson is trying to promote his League of Nations. And he to him, this League of Nations is kind of the war to end all wars. You know, la- last year or I'm sorry, last night was the hundredth anniversary of the armistice. Well, you know, Wilson saw this as the opportunity. The League is going to end wars for all eternity. And so this is kind of like a to him, the hope of the world rests on on getting this treaty through and getting America and the League of Nations. Um, and there's a big Senate fight for it. Senate has to ratify it. And Wilson basically goes on this trip across the country to promote uh, his his treaty and to build support for it. And they'll pressure members of Congress to vote for it. So it's really kind of... Uh, you know, uh, uh, a crusade from his perspective. And th- this is when Woodrow Wilson, he had traveled to Paris to negotiate this treaty and he was already exhausting himself. And his doctors actually told him that y- you can't make this trip. Like, don't do it. It's kind of crazy. Some historians uh, believe that he had kind of a Messiah complex and that he, you know, if he would work himself to death, maybe even die doing it, the uh, the support for the league would be overwhelming. People would support it. I mean, it's who knows, really. But, you know, at, at any rate, this was what he really wanted. And he suffers a stroke and he's paralyzed. Uh, this is in the fall of, of 1919. And, uh, you know, if you read Edith Wilson's biography or autobiography, it, it, her memoirs, it's very interesting because she, on one hand, you know, she talks about what happened, but on the other hand, she, you know, she's really dedicated to her, her husband's memory. So she doesn't want to make it look like he was as debilitated as he was, you know. So he, she portrays it as, I, I helped him out and all that stuff, but he was the one who had the final say, which was probably true to some extent. But he was, I mean, he was in awful shape. I mean, he was basically a, a, a just kind of a, a shell of the man he was. Um, and, you know, a very tragic situation for him. And uh, she kind of had to take over his job and run the show. And the the thing that's crazy about it is, I mean, she's really dealing with a time that's very pivotal in American history. <laughs> you know, I mean, the, the, with the league and, and what kind of world we're going to have after World War One. And she and they're they're having to cover this up. 
you know, and they're basically having to, uh, you know, the like they would get uh, requests from the different departments on what to do about this, you know, policy guidance. And she would kind of just sign off on it and just choose something and just sign <laughs> off on it and send it back. After a while, they started piling up because there's just so much work to do. And, you know, but but, you know, some of the White House staff members um, that knew what was going on, they complimented her and said that she's doing pretty much the best she could under those circumstances. That really excites me as an Ottoman historian. And I'll explain why. Um, so in the Ottoman Empire, it's in the Middle East. It's this major Muslim power in Istanbul. There's about a 40 or 50 between 50 and 100 year period called the Sultanate of Women, where Wives and mothers and even grandmothers of incompetent sultans or sultans who are boys when they take the throne basically run the entire empire. And um, this is almost exactly the same as Edith Wilson, where behind the scene, the, the public face is, of course, the strong sultan or in Woodrow Wilson's case, the, the able-bodied. Yes, he had a little bit of an illness, but he's back on his feet making peace for the world. But she's running the show behind the scenes with... I don't, Edith had no political experience whatsoever. Do I have that right? Yep, you have that right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I, it's funny. If you read her memoirs, um, I think there's, if I recall right, if I recall correctly, there, um, she describes meeting Wilson for the first time. This is way before all this. And it's, it's very much of the perspective of someone that really doesn't know much about politics. And it's kind of like, oh, it's so cool. He's the president. But, you know, very surface level <laughs> kind of stuff. And but, you know, who would have thought that years later she would basically be uh, uh, engaged in this cover up? I mean, that's really what it was. It was an, a, a cover up to prevent anyone from knowing his his true state. And I, I think part of the reason they did that, too, was because of the circumstance. Uh, you know, it was, a, it was a very critical time and there was a lot of fear within the White House of what would happen to Wilson's agenda if it was known what his true state is. Um, and the other thing too, is that it also, some historians say that it may have clouded his judgment. Uh, you know, as, as anyone who studied that era knows, um, America did not join the league of nations and that had consequences from, from then on. Uh, there was a chance when Wilson could have compromised, uh, with the, with, with those who opposed the league, um, and, and perhaps salvage some sort of situation where America could join the league. And uh, Wilson, uh, you know, they they actually tried to convince Edith to talk to him about it, to convince him. And it took a long time, but she finally agreed to do it. She was afraid of pushing him too hard because of his health, but she agreed to do it. And he said, no, we're not going to compromise on this. And the league failed. Um, And whatever one's view of the league is, you know, I mean, some people felt that was the right decision, some the wrong decision. But either way, it was a very consequential decision. And it's it's very possible Wilson's health was was definitely a, a factor in all that. Do historians have any sense one way or another if her taking over the presidency could have derailed the plans of the Wilson administration or perhaps done just as well as anyone could have expected? Um, do you have a sense? So just from what I've read, it's I think that more of it is based on what uh, kind of Wilson's state of mind was and and more based on, you know, him, him, his actions may have been impaired by kind of the physical state and possibly mental state he was in. I I, I don't think there's any sense that Edith was was um, pushing him to do this or to do that. Uh, So I, I, I don't ever get the sense that she was kind of. Uh, 
held culpable in that sense. Um, but you know, and and Edith herself always tried to maintain that I was just doing what I felt my husband would have done. Um, partly hmm. to kind of you know play up his role as opposed to hers, and you know, and the thing is also is that there, there's no sense that she kind of relished being this powerful, most powerful person, right? I mean, she, there's, you know, if you read her memoir, she does downplay her own role. And I think she was so concerned about word breaking out about her husband. There's this very interesting uh, moment too, where Congress starts getting suspicious about Wilson's health. So they actually send a delegation to the white house and you know, the, like Edith and, and, um, you know, the, their other advisors, the president's assistant, they, they were obviously very worried about how this would play out. So if I recall correctly, um, they, they kind of propped up Wilson in his room. And they, <laughs> Weekend at and Bernie's. They, yeah, yeah, exactly. They dimmed the light and all that stuff, and they coached him on what to say. And <laughs> it's, it's weird because, um, you know, the, the, member, the delegation that saw him, no one had seen Wilson in a while, and he had been you know, uh, pretty much bedridden for, for months. And apparently he has this white beard, this white goatee that kind of went, you know, I mean, really he'd kind of deteriorated and hadn't really taken care of himself. And apparently he, he passed the test. Apparently he like kind of roused himself and, and, you know, delivered enough of a, uh, a performance so that, Oh, he's, I guess he's fine, you know, <laughs> and, and he just has a, a cold or something, but yeah, it was kind of a, a harrowing moment there for a second. Well, yeah, this is such a crazy story. And uh, the other mm-hmm. things that you mentioned as well, uh, figures showing up at times in history that we wouldn't expect them to show up. So mm-hmm. to tie these things in together, what do you think you came away with looking at these different campaigns from 1872 all the way up to 1972? Do you do you think you got any insight about uh, looking at then were long shot candidates and what it means to be someone who hasn't broken a barrier yet and is trying to you know, bend the arc of history in some direction. Yeah. You know, it, it's very interesting because um, I guess there, there are a couple things. Um, the first is that this whole thing, this whole history brings up just kind of the, the idea of, of just the whole American experiment in, in democracy. And, you know, it, it was interesting when we did this, we would ask, I asked a lot of people, we've never had a woman president. Why do you think that is? And I got a lot of answers. You know, some people would talk, you know, people talk about sexism. People talk about lots, lots of different things. And one thing that's interesting that I found out was that they did a, a kind of a research into different countries and they found that women actually tend to rise to the highest level of politics in authoritarian nations more than in democratic nations. And and part of that is because, uh, I guess, in authoritarian nations, a lot of times you do have that kind of women's mandate or widow's mandate thing, right? Where, uh, you know, a woman who's close to the throne can kind of take over. And when you look at Russian history, um, you know, it, it's it's you've seen that happen, and you look at Chinese history. You know, in the 19th century, China was ruled by uh, a woman who had started out as the king's concubine. You know, the yeah. emperor's concubine, and then you know, so on and so forth. And and so uh, most, it's so interesting. And in, in uh, American democracy, we have a system such that it's actually hard for not necessarily just women, but any group to kind of break in because uh, our system has a, a good amount of inertia and just the way our system is, you know, we have a, uh, you know, the, the, the political system, um, 
you know, the single member district as opposed to proportionate representation, all that kind of political science kind of stuff. It's it just it, it makes it hard for any group to to break in initially. And I think uh, for women, sometimes uh, it, it's that's been a tough thing. And I, I'm, I was reading surveys where uh, they said that people actually aren't against women running for office and nor do they actually have any um there's this thing that people talk about that uh, it's harder for women to run for office because you know it's this this finer line between being feminine and being um perceived as as ambitious and you know some people don't think that those two should mix and i've seen surveys that actually say that that's not the case you know people people tend to vote for uh, based more on ideology than than women uh, than than gender or you know being perceived as masculine or feminine or any of that kind of stuff. So you know we talk about this in our our podcast episode, but I I found that it says a lot about our political system and a lot more kind of about the system we have as opposed to any kind of inherent uh, biases towards gender. Well, yeah, that's really fascinating, and I recommend uh, if people want to hear more about this to check out this uh, particular episode on this American president. So, uh, Richard, if people want to find your show and see what you're up to online, where is the best place to find you? Yeah, uh, you can find us on, uh, well, you can go to our website, thisamericanpresident.com. We also have a Facebook group. Just look up This American President. We have a Twitter uh, you know, handle, uh, thisamerprez. Um, can I can I say a couple things more uh, actually about Edith Wilson? Yeah, uh, absolutely. There's one very interesting story. Um, is one thing I I've just found so ironic um, is that she was running the country essentially uh, more so than you know I think any woman before her maybe since right at the same time that the Nineteenth Amendment was ratified when women got the right to vote. And while this whole movement that had lasted decades had had finally culminated in this, you know, victory, uh, they had, no one had any idea really that a woman <laughs> was actually running the government. And the other ironic thing about it is that she, you know, uh, Vic, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Edith Wilson, she actually hated the suffragists. I mean, she absolutely <laughs> hated. Them. And the main reason is because you know uh, a lot of them had a very lukewarm relationship with Wilson because Wilson was kind of a late supporter of suffrage, women's suffrage. And so she actually saw them burn her husband in effigy right outside the White House, <laughs> which, you know, for a, a Southern lady, you know, from a, a, that era was uh, just, you know, very appalling to her. So, but it, it's just such an irony to me, excuse me, such an irony to me that, um, that that you know, lo and behold, like nobody knew that a woman was actually you know, and 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 pe- and there was someone, I, uh, one commentator that had a hint that that was going on that Woodrow Wilson was actually running the country, and and uh, there's a quote where he says something to the effect that uh, if suffragists knew that the best argument for their right to vote was actually in the White House <laughs> right at that moment, you know. And so the the other insight I was going to say, too, is that I guess it's just one of those great ironies of history. I mean, there there have, you know, been women who have worked very hard to position themselves to run for president. But his, history, in, an, in a, just an accident of circumstances, put Edith Wilson in the position <laughs> probably more than any other women in history. And... It was really a lot of circumstances. You also had the fact that Wilson's vice president, Thomas Marshall, was 
pretty uh, passive guy, pretty weak. He actually didn't even want to be president. He was afraid of, you know, taking over the position. I mean, you know, say if you had a John Tyler in the office, he would have said, no, I'm president, right? But but mm-hmm. you didn't have that during that circumstance. So it's funny the way history goes. You just can never tell, you know? Excellent point. And I'm a proponent of that, yeah. too. There's just there's lots of dumb luck that comes around. Oh, well, yeah. Thanks again for uh, sharing all the stories. And uh, the podcast is This American President. And I'll include the link on the show notes that you mentioned. So, Richard, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, that is the episode for today. And I really appreciate you listening because it's you, the audience, that makes this show happen. And it's also you, the audience, that grows this show. First of all, I'd like to thank the Knowlton's Rangers and especially our spy masters, Baron Fraser, Carl from Norway, Chris from Maine, Moondoggy from Ohio, and Rick Knowlton. And I'll explain what that means in a second. If you would like to help support this show and help it reach new listeners who haven't discovered it yet, there's four easy ways for you to do it. First, subscribe to the show and leave us a review on the listening app of your choice. If you want to do that, you can go to historyunplugpodcast.com. Two, like us on Facebook and share posts about new episodes. Three, check out sponsors for the show. This is the best way to help me pay the bills because if sponsors see the audience is interested in their products, they will keep advertising. Four, you can become a member of the Knowlton's Rangers. The Knowlton's Rangers were an elite reconnaissance and espionage detachment of the Continental Army in the Revolutionary War, but it's also the name of the History Unplugged membership program. Learn how to join by going to patreon.com slash unplugged. So here's what you get if you become one of the Knowlton's Rangers. If you join at the level of Scout, you can get early access to new podcast episodes, along with enjoying absolutely every single episode of the History Unplugged podcast ad-free, all 270 and counting episodes. If you join at the level of Intelligence Officer, you can also get access to premium episodes, like a multi-part series on the life of Audie Murphy, the most decorated combat soldier in World War II, or the 10-part series Autumn and Lives, a series that looks at the cast of characters that made up the Ottoman Empire, such as the Sultan, the Eunuch, the Harem Servant Girl, and the Soldier. And finally, if you join at the level of Spymaster, you get all the same stuff as the Scouts and Intelligence Officers, but you also get a shout-out to you and or your business at the end of each episode, a three-pack of hardcover history books, plus you will be put at the very front of the line for me to answer your question about history, and I can guarantee I will dedicate an episode that's about an hour long or so to your question. Sign up at patreon.com slash unplugged. Again, that's patreon.com slash unplugged. Anyway, those are the ways you can help out the show. Thank you so much for your support. Thanks for listening to the History Unplugged podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show to get your daily dose of all things history-related from ancient Greece to the Cold War. We'll see you next time at the History Unplugged podcast. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. What if you could have a career? 
where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.